You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 96 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I'm I'm all right, thanks Valerie. I am <laughs> just getting my head around how I am, which, you know, could take some time. Do you know how I am? I'm, a, I'm actually really good because I finished that draft of my manuscript oh, last wow, week. Oh, so wow, well done. I've completed two first drafts in the last four months. So I'm a little bit tired, but yes. I'm feeling quite happy with myself for having got that far. And the other big news of the day is that I have, drum roll please, yes, drum reinstalled roll. the Instagram app on my phone. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. It's my it's – my, Seen the light. Well, not so much seen the light, but I – I did, really disliked it last time I tried it, but that was two years ago and it's quite different now. Yes. And I also, like, you know, part of my sort of New Year's goals and things like that, I thought I'll, I'll branch out yes. into something new because, you know, I'm, I'm doing my thing and it's all going very nicely, but let's let's try something else. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll, now that I have ProcrastiPop to photograph regularly, <laughs> I thought, <laughs> so we might just call it ProcrastiPopGram and leave it at that, but we'll see how we go. Well, what Here's- is your name on Instagram? Uh, I am Alison Tate Writer. Right. So if you would like to see lots of photos of ProcrastiPop and my roses, because I'm pretty sure that's pretty much all i got up right now, um, then please follow me. Come, share, let's chat. That would be lovely. Awesome. Well, while you have moved on to Instagram, I am now exploring the world of Snapchat. Oh, go yes. Valerie. So I am called, my username on Snapchat is the Valerie Koo. And I was thinking of you on the weekend as, as I was. As opposed to real Valerie Koo. <laughs> That's right. Apparently Valerie Koo was taken. Can you believe it? So um, uh, I was thinking of you as I was Snapchatting on the weekend because I was mm. Snapchatting my new herb garden, which mm. I have mm. no idea what to do with. So I need your, I guess you're, you know, you've got a green thumb. So maybe <laughs> after we record this, you can give yep. me some tips because yes. I honestly, I bought the potting mix. I bought a little trowel and I bought a, some gloves and I just don't know what to do with any of it. So, oh, um, and good. I don't know whether they go in shade or sun or whatever, but okay. I will get your tips. Sun, let's just start with that. Okay. Garden. But we don't need to turn this into a gardening <laughs> no. show. So I, I will not discuss the benefits of compost with you at this time. However, we will have a long chat about that later. Yes, this is in fact So You Want to Be a Writer and we want yes. to give a big shout out to AG Doors. Thank you, AG Doors, for your five-star rating on iTunes. Really appreciate it. AG Doors has said, brilliant presenters, fascinating guests and industry gossip. Yeah, we do oh, love a bit of a gossip, don't we? There you go. I like fascinating guests and brilliant presenters. Yeah. <laughs> AG Dawes has said, I can't believe it took me this long to find the So You Want to Be a Writer podcast. The presenters, Valerie and Alison, are bright and lively and the topics they discuss range from quirky to edifying to downright fascinating. I love that they cover juicy industry gossip and the inner workings of the publishing world as well as the many facets of the writing process. Thank 
cute and AG doors. composting as well. Yeah, and yes. composting as well. <laughs> Thank you, AG doors. We appreciate it. Yes, really appreciate it. And if you speaking yeah, of, yes. oh, sorry. Well, I was just going to say, if you do have thirty seconds to leave us a rating or review on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it because it does help us heaps in the rankings. It does. You, you were saying. I'm just on the subject of juicy industry gossip, oh, yes. which we love. Yes, um, love. I went to the Clio farewell. <gasps> we were talking about it in the last uh, episode. Yes. And I went to the Clio farewell. What's the gossip? Uh, do. Oh, look, it was just wonderful. It was so <laughs> nice. I, honestly, like it's not even juicy. I can't even go there. But there were some fabulous shoes I in bet. the room. There yes. was some fabulous hair in the room. Mm. Ita Buttrose was in the room oh, my giving goodness. a speech, having a chat. Lisa Wilkinson was in the room. Paula Joy was in the room. Hey, look, it was great. It was so good just to see everybody again. Like the uh, there was a, a lot of our team from yes, our time yes. there. Um, so it was just brilliant to catch up with everyone. So I'm just going to say hi to all the, you know, Team Cleo and um, loved working with you and it was lovely to see you all. Yeah, I did see your photo on Instagram and for a minute there I did think I should have got off my ass and gone, but, you know, I was lazy. So. <laughs> and you saw me on Instagram and thought, oh, and fell over because, oh, my God, there's a photo of Al on Instagram. I know. But you should have come. It really was It really was quite wonderful. I had a great time. Uh, okay, well, yeah. we will have to do with the gossip in the world of writing and publishing and blogging this week. So what have you got for us? So what have I got? I have a post that we have reproduced on the Australian Writers' Centre blog and I first found it on LinkedIn and it's written by uh, Matthew, uh, Matthew Kerr-Lewis, who is an Australian screenwriter, copywriter and writing consultant and he is the great-grandson of Ethel Turner. Mm. Now, who wrote Seven Little Australians? And he actually wrote this shortly before Australia Day in 2016 and he has given us permission to republish it because he was looking, he he was, you know, researching some of his um, grandmother's stuff and he had um, realised that the Seven Little Australians had a number of different editions, which is not surprising at all. Of course, it's been around forever. But it's so wonderful. It's so wonderful. But uh, he discovered that in some of the editions, it had been, what's the right word for it? Um, whitewashed, in a sense, mm. because an entire section um, that involved some scenes with some Koori people were taken out. Mm. And he was um, very shocked about this and it was changed in subsequent uh, subsequent editions but there was a period there that uh that it's 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 there's a it was a white version of seven little australians somewhere between 1896 and 1994 oh that's a long time yes and so we have um also reproduced that the the passage that has been um omitted and uh, I think people will find this absolutely fascinating. So we'll put the link in the show notes, but you can just go to writercentercomau slash blog and uh, find it there as well. And if you haven't read Seven Little Australians, then I thoroughly recommend that you do because it's a wonderful story. I remember the first time I read it and no spoilers, but let's just say I was devastated by it. Mm. Devastated. Mm. So definitely worth a read if you haven't read it. Yes, yes, definitely worth a read. Uh, and we have another link for, um, this week, which I thought was really interesting because now when you go to the shop and you buy a card, 
You often don't think, who writes these things, do you? Oh, I do. I do. do, you, do you? I do. I often wonder where, <laughs> and I wanted to, I actually wanted to be a greeting card writer at one stage because I really? thought it was about the same time and I decided I wanted to name nail polishes <laughs> and what else did I want to do? And paints, paint colours. I thought that would be also an excellent job. However, I did none of these things, so perhaps you'd like to go on with your story now. Paint colours. You wanted to name paint colours? Particularly nail polish colours I wanted to do. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that would be fun. Well, this was just an interesting article from Business Insider, and we'll put the link in the show notes because it's quite long. And it basically profiles what it's like to be one of the 24 greeting card writers at Hallmark. Uh, and you they, you know, they write all the things from, you know, Valentine's Day to birthdays. They, uh, they know the ones that sell really well, the ones that don't sell really well. And it tracks a particular Hallmark card writer from her application to what she does now. So, um, it's, it's, it's fascinating to, to know that people, you know, that a lot of people who, um, think about doing this as a job are people who actually do, who actually love literature, love words, love writing, but potentially in their circumstance, they might think, okay, well, if I like these things, I might become English teacher, but then they start doing teaching or start studying teaching and realize this is not the path I want to go down. And this is a route for them being a Hallmark card writer. So the, the writer that they've actually profiled in this piece has written, been writing greetings cards for more than 30 years. Yeah. And she writes anywhere from two to 20 cards a week. I think it sounds like a really good job. She also does stuff where she like, she works on their Facebook page and she, like, I, yeah, like I really, what was I thinking? I should have followed my initial dream mm-hmm, of becoming mm-hmm. a greeting card writer or nail polish namer. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you, just as an aside, because I have to throw in a story of my about my cats somehow. Of course, Rex. Goes that same. Yeah, Rex, my cat, my beautiful cat who I love dearly. His mum is on a Hallmark card, a very top selling Hallmark card. <gasps> no way. Just thought I'd mention that. Did you frame it? Have you got framed copies? I haven't framed it, but I do have the card. You should frame it. Yeah, I should actually. Just to keep it for him, <laughs> keep it safe. <laughs> and um, he does look a lot like his mother, I would like to say. Well, I can't believe you haven't got him into modelling. What do you think? I have tried. I had had agents approach him. You've had agents Yes, two life. animal agents approached him because of the photos that I put on social media. Um, and he'd have, to, he'd have to be a cat that worked well with others. Well, this is the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Is that even though he's stunning, he's not great with people. So this is the problem. And he's had casting calls where, you know, they've said, oh, he'll need to sit on this girl's lap. Like, oh, yeah, he's not going to do that. (laughs) It's so hard to be a stage mum these days, isn't it? I know. He could be famous by now if he was a little bit more friendly. You could be raking in the dough. I could. (laughs) It's hard to get good help. What can I say? Um, Okay, let's move on to another link that I've got. This is – I thought I'd mention this only because I'm seeing it a lot lately. It's just a link from PR Daily, and it's an old one that called 12 Writing Mistakes Nearly Everyone Makes. I'm not going to go through all of them because there's some 
you know, that are really uh, straightforward. But one that I wanted to mention is fewer versus less. And I know we may have uh, covered this like ages ago, but I thought Mm -hmm. I would refer to it again because I see it a lot, these mistake a lot, especially on television ads and on billboards and from people who should know better. Now, you know the rule for fewer versus less, don't you? Uh, yes, because we have discussed it before. And in fact, I was giving an example of it to, uh, I was chasing my children down the street in Sydney the other day, and it was incredibly busy. And we were discussing the fact that there were way too many people in Sydney. And one of them said, there needs to be less people here. And oh. I said, no, darling, there needs to be fewer people here. <laughs> And that's why it's so much fun to be my kid. Yeah, there you go. Right there. you go. So how would you define the rule for people who don't know? I have no idea. I just use it, Valerie. You know that I'm good (laughs) at defining anything. You you define it for me. Um, Well, fewer is for things that you can count. So when you have your items at the supermarket and it's 15 or less, that's wrong because you can count. There's 15. So it's 15 or fewer items. But then there are some things that you can't count, like the fabric on your dress. Mm. You know, you can't count that. So you need less fabric on your dress, but Mm. you need fewer buttons on your dress. Mm. So there you go. There you go. Now you can all sleep. Oh, yes, I'm feeling so much better. Thanks, Valerie. You're I don't welcome. know what we do without you. <laughs> so I thought I would post this, um, not post, mention a link, which is on 360 Content Pro. It's actually pretty good, this link, um, okay. because people often ask us sometimes, especially if because people you know, are exploring the world of content and they've been asked to write press releases, how to write a press release. Uh, well, a good press release, of course, mm. because you and I have been both been on the receiving end of bad press releases. Oh, so many. Haven't we? And oh, so people many. think that they can just write some kind of announcement and that's a good press release and it, or, or write a brochure and that's a good press release, but it's not. Um, so we'll put this link in the show notes, but basically it ne- what it's saying is that you need to cover a newsworthy topic. Mm. So the thing is sometimes say you've opened a new – I don't know, shop down the road, that might be newsworthy in your neighbourhood, but it's certainly not newsworthy on a national level because shops Mm. open all the time. So you need to think of a way to make it newsworthy. It's not just the opening of the shop, but maybe you're opening in response to a big trend in Australia that has seen everyone be really interested in whatever. Um, So you've got to make it newsworthy. Next, of course, you need to write an attention-grabbing headline. Mm. However, I think that one of the biggest mistakes people make is they try to be funny with the headline. Mm. Don't be funny. Just be clear. Very Mm. clear. This is what it's about. Um, You need an opening statement of your your who, what, where, when, why, how, basically. Who, what, when, where, why, how. Um, And you need it to be not too long. Like I've seen Mm. some press releases go on for three pages. That's insane. Yes, no. And um, quotes, this is, a, this is a good one, quotes should give insight, not information. So if you're actually quoting somebody, you don't quote that somebody reading off the specs of that particular product. You need to quote them offering insight saying, well, this product is going to be good because it will actually save three hours of productivity per day, mm. not actually talking about the, the, little, the features of the product because you can just write that in the release. 
That's right. So, yeah, I, I think this is a good one if people want to have a bit of an idea of what to include in a press release. We'll put the link in the show notes, which, of course, you can find at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast. And I think the thing to remember too is when you're writing a press release, you you need to think like a journalist. You need to think about what a journalist wants to know about this particular subject, what is going to make them Your press release might be one of 50 that that journalist receives that day. What is going to make yours stand out? And Mm. give the journalist an angle. Give them a reason to run the story. And if you give them that and you make your your press release, I I just always really enjoyed a, a, a press release where the person who had written it had obviously thought about it and had almost written the story for me, like made my job, like make it easy. You want to make the job of the journalist easier and they will love you for it. Yep, absolutely. So now let's move on to our giveaway this week. Oh, what have we got? Yes, our giveaway is a cute book. It is called Monty and Me by Louisa Bennett and it's about a lovable dog detective called Monty. (laughs) Yeah, very cute and it's actually written from Monty's point of view. So it says here in the description, you might think that dogs can't understand us but you'd be wrong. Apart from an obsession with cheese, Monty is a perfectly Cheese? Yeah, cheese. (laughs) Cheese isn't good for dogs. No, no, Mm. yes. He's a very unusual dog. Unusual dog, I suppose, yes. So when his beloved master is stabbed to death, Monty decides to use his formidable nose to track the killer down. So, slightly different kind of crime book from Louisa Bennett. Hmm. And if you want to win a copy, then go to writerscentre.com.au slash win. And uh, and you have a chance to um, enter. Entries close Monday, twenty second of February. But if you're listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry. Just go to writerscentre.com.au/win, and there'll be another giveaway for you. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is a perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. In a couple of hours each week, you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personalised feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. All right, so what is our writing craft book this week, Al? Well, I've actually got a very cute one. This is for like junior Valerie's. Okay. <laughs> putting it out there and I happen to be the mother of a junior Valerie oh, I, <laughs> I do so um so Mr 12 uh, my son he is a book reviewer and he writes book reviews for two websites um one of which is children's books daily uh which is run by mm. the fabulous Megan Daly and one of the books that she has sent him she sends him a stack of books and he reads through them all and then he writes her reviews on the ones that he really likes and one of the books that he is absolutely loving at the moment is a book called Word Burger, which I think is just Word a nice way Burger. of 
Yeah, I think it's a nice way of saying nerd burger, but we won't go there. So it's called <laughs> Word Burger, How to Be a Champion Puzzler in 20 Quick Bites. And it's written by David Astell, of course, who is a noted uh, writer in the area of language, etc. And it's a fantastic little book um, for you know, teaching uh, kids or grown-ups because, frankly, like I've had a read through it, it's really funny, um, uh, about, you know, how to do cryptic crosswords, uh, palind- what palindromes are, spoonerisms, anagrams. Oh, wow. It talks you through the basics of, you know, language and how, how word play works and how word games work. And, you know, as I said, my 12-year-old is just loving it. So I think that if you are into word play and word games, you might enjoy it. Or if you have a junior Valerie in your life, then your junior Valerie will probably love it as well. So it's called <laughs> Word Burger, How to Be a Champion Puzzler in 20 Quick Bites by David Astor. Love it. Love it. All right. So we have a writer in residence this week, don't we, Al? Who is it? Oh, our writer in I was very, very excited about this particular one. And my biggest issue was how was I going to keep it to a vaguely relevant um, length and not make it into a two-hour special <laughs> because I spoke to Hazel Edwards. Now, oh. Hazel Edwards is an absolute legend in Australian children's writing. Um, she uh, wrote the classic book, There's a Hippopotamus on My Roof Eating Cake, which has been reprinted more times than I think anybody would care to remember. She's actually known as the Hippo Lady. It's been turned into a musical. It's been turned into TV, to drama, to all manner of things. It turned into a whole series. But not only that, but she also writes for adults. She writes YA. She's written over 200 published books in her many years as an author. And her latest, um, so she has two releases out at the moment, one of which is a memoir called uh, not just a piece of cake, being an author. Mm. And it's all about, you know, being an author over nearly 50 years and, um, you know, combining it with family life and all the different things. And it's a really, really interesting read and I recommend it. And she also has a new book um, out this week called Hijabi Girl um, and it's a co-authored project and she actually co-authors quite regularly. So that was something that collaborates regularly and we talked a lot about why she does that and how she does that as well. But it was a fantastic chat and I um, I hope you guys enjoy it. Best known for the children's literature classic, There's a Hippopotamus on Our Roof Eating Cake series, Hazel Edwards writes for children, teenagers and adults. She has had more than 200 books published and has recently written a memoir of her life and work called Not Just a Piece of Cake, Being an Author. Other recent releases include F2M, The Boy Within, co-authored with Ryan Kennedy, and Trail Magic, Going Walkabout for 2,184 Miles on the Appalachian Trail, co-authored with her son, Trevelyan Quest Edwards. Coming out this week is Hijabi Girl, co-authored with Esge Alkin. So welcome to the program, Hazel, that you have the most amazing um, CV, I think, of any author I've spoken to so far. Um, but let's start at right back at the beginning when you, were work- you worked as a high school teacher before publishing your first novel, General Store. What brought you to write the novel and how did it come to be published? Well, uh, I I was told, (laughs) as most aspiring writers are told, to write about what you know, first of all, because then it sounds authentic. Well, I'd grown up as a teenager in a general store in Gippsland. And so what I did, excuse me, was I 
use the setting of the general store. It's not really autobiographical. The central character isn't me. But I thought that would be my practice novel, using a familiar setting. And otherwise, I would have changed the name of the story because I think general store is a, a particularly boring title. <laughs> and a, a lot of people have assumed that general meant a rank and store was the surname. <laughs> um, and so uh, at that stage, I wasn't as aware of the importance of titles. Uh, I'm very much aware of that now. But at that stage, I wrote it as a first uh, young adult novel, my first one, expecting to have to write three. Uh, and then it was unexpectedly accepted on wow. a first uh, reading by Hodder and Stoughton. So what I'd done was I'd compiled a list of 10 of the top uh, publishers and I thought, well, I'll work my way through them and while I'm doing that, I'll get on with the second and the third novel, and then maybe I'll crack it by the third. But the reason I was writing then, which was, a, I was about 26, was I was about to have my first child, and I had a couple of months um, where I could control the time in my life a little better. Uh, I, the baby hadn't arrived yet. Uh, and I thought, well, in the first year uh, of... Uh, and I wasn't a full-time mum because I was working as well, but I would I would experiment because I wouldn't ever have this sort of time flexibility again. So that's why I started then. So in, in a way, it was the birth of a baby and the birth of a book together. Fantastic. <laughs> and had you actually been, because um, I, I, I saw on your website, which is a fantastic resource for Well, writers. that's due to the what was baby, now my uh, daughter in her oh. 40s, who's my marketing manager, we're very much a family, uh, as I was asked the other day, is writing your family trade. Well, in a way, I've co-written with my son with the challenging name and uh, also uh, he hated that name when he was a kid. He loves it now as a writer. But uh, Trevelyan Quest Edwards is a bit of a mouthful. But uh, my daughter has helped me very much because in her real job, she's uh, a marketing manager and I'm just format challenge. I don't think in pictures and shapes, which is partly why I have a lot of different types of collaborations because I work with people in different fields and it's wonderful to work with someone else who imagines with different skills from your own. I think in abstract. That's and that's why I can work with, say, a picture book illustrator or a puppeteer or uh, a co-writer in crime because they think differently. And putting together two different types of thinkers means that the eventual book works much better. That's really interesting. And I do want to speak to you more about co-authoring down the track because I think it's something that... Um, people might think about, but they're not entirely sure what the, um, you know, the practicalities and pitfalls of that mm. might be. But um, just going back to that, like I saw on your website that you uh, you had been writing, you know, you wrote your first novel in sixth grade. You were one of those authors yes, who sort of started right. very young, et cetera. But, Readaholic. Um, did you, um, had you written all the time before that sort of you, you attempted that first novel or was it just a case of, 
I've got the time. I'm going to have this baby. It's now or never. I'm going to see if I can get this. No, no. I'd always known that I wanted to be an author, but I didn't actually know any authors. When I was growing up, authors didn't visit schools in Mm. the way in which I tend to do or others do these days. Uh, So I, uh, although I came from a household that read very widely, I'd never met an author, but I knew that's what I wanted to be. And my father suggested I get a real job first. (laughs) Um, Which is good advice, I think. Yes, that's right. Uh, So that's why I was was actually a primary teacher, first of all. And primary teaching and writing are actually very similar in that they're to do with ideas and personalities. And what partly attracted me to being a long-term author was the variety of acquiring different sorts of skills, but being able to continue to learn in different fields. And that's what I have done. And that's partly one of the reasons I mentioned to you before about the collaboration. Mm. One of the ways you can continue to learn is when you work with an expert from some other field Mm. and you learn in the process of doing that book. Okay. So speaking of collaborations, the classic picture book, There's a Hippopotamus on Our Roof Eating Cake, which I bought for my nephew, who's two for Christmas, was Mm. your third published work. Now, it's slightly different to writing a a YA. How did you come to a picture book? And, you know, did you ever imagine it would prove as lastingly popular as it has? (laughs) Well, The Hippopotamus on the Roof Eating Cake, which is actually 36 years old, written 38 years before, but published 36 years ago, um, came about as a result of something going wrong, and that is our roof leak. We still live in the same house, and I get people who knock at the front door saying, is there a hippopotamus on this roof? (laughs) And I say, have a look. You can't say yes, and you can't say no. So, uh, I mean, there was a genuine problem with the roof and it dripped, and my then four-year-old son, that was Trevelyan with the challenging name, whom we actually call Velian at home, uh, he said, oh, that's the hippo up there that eats cake that was making the noise on the roof. And it was a family story in the way in which many families have stories about imaginary friends yes. for that four-year-old age group. Yes. And what was different in our case was that I captured it in words and the children were involved in writing it too. But we wrote it originally just as a family activity. But at that stage, I'd already been published by Hodder. Uh, General Store had been published and a second book had been accepted for junior readers. And so I showed it to them and they took it immediately. And that was why it doesn't always work that way. No. I wish it always did, but this was one of those things. And they matched me with Deborah Nyland because Deborah Nyland was in their stable of illustrators. And what they did at that stage was that traditional publishers would link a known with an unknown. So a known illustrator, in this case Deborah Nyland, with an unknown writer who was me. Um, and, and that is probably quite a successful combination of putting the known with the unknown in lots of different fields. And because originally we wanted to use the children's own illustrations, but that wasn't viable. So that was how that came about. And now the hippo, uh, I think I knew it was a special story, but I never expected it 
to travel as far as it has. It's gone into Chinese translation. This year it's touring as a musical, Hippo Hippo. Um, it's gone into Auslan signing and into Braille. And um, it really has been... Um, and it's been extremely comforting to some children who are sick or incapacitated in some way. And I mentioned some of those and some of the fan mail in the memoir because some of those stories are extremely poignant. Mm. And that's where I really think the value of a book like There's a Hippopotamus on the Roof Eating Cake, which I don't actually consider as mine anymore. I think a book actually belongs to the reader's imagination once it's published. So many claim ownership of that book in the sense that it's been their favourite childhood book. And that is a wonderful thing, but it, it goes on in its own right. It's not really... Uh, my book, you understand what I mean? I do, and I, I c completely mm. understand. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's what, 400 and something, 400 odd words? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Uh, which also points up one of the reasons why I use that title on the memoir, not just a piece of cake, because often people consider that writing for children is easier mm. and they tend to think that less is of less, con fewer words is of mm. less consequence. I have written in lots of different fields and I have to share with you that getting picture book text right and getting the subtext, the things going on underneath, choreographed well is technically more challenging mm. than writing a 100,000 word mm. uh adult book <laughs> and I think it's a bit unfortunate at times that people assume that a writer's IQ is commensurate with the age of their readers <laughs> um, because it is actually more challenging to do that and that's one of the things I've tried to share the, the candid uh, feelings about the areas of writing, um, particularly in relation to writing for children. So writing for children is not just a piece of cake. And I don't say defensively, oh, I write for adults too, because it sounds like a put down. And that's not so. Every form of writing has its own challenges. But for me, writing for children is like the Rolls Royce in the sense of the books that you write and you read when you're very young have a much longer impact so true. Um, and you feel more affectionately about them and people are more inclined to keep them. Mm. And so now I'm reaching the stage where the third generation <laughs> wow. is saying to me, oh, that's my favourite book. I have nice. a, a, a couple of grandsons and now their contemporaries um, see it as their favourite book. <laughs> it's amazing. I, I just I love the longevity of it. I just think it's an incredible thing that to have created a a story that is so immediate for across so many generations. I think it's an extraordinary achievement. So well done. Well, <laughs> I think it's it, it, and the reason for it, and you can't you can't um, give a recipe for that no. sort of thing. I, I I've been asked a number of times why I think it's. It survived. Well, I think one reason is that it's a universal situation. It appeals to 
people, well, for children, uh, but also because adults share those sorts of uh, books. It can be read. Um, it has a rhythm to it. Um, I, I choose the words very, very carefully for a picture storybook. It has a rhythm to it, but it's really a universal situation and it's the reassurance of a large uh, friend who's got all the answers. And let's mm. face it, as an adult, we'd like one of those too. Yes, I'd, <laughs> I'd like one of those. Well, you're clearly an author with a lot of ideas. I mean, you, you've had, you know, 200 books published. That's a lot yes, of ideas. That's right. How do you decide which idea to write next? Well, I've been a commercial writer in the sense that I have made a living from writing for the la- I'm 70 now and I was published first in my late 20s. Mm, so I've wow. been consistently published in various fields and various ways. But having an educational background has given another dimension for me. So that's meant that often I've been able to write something about the how-to aspect as mm. well. So um, one niche area in which I've been involved, although I'm not a genealogist, is writing a non-boring family history. Mm. And I've run workshops on that. And that book is very, very popular because a lot of people are interested in the how-to aspect. Mm. So often I've written a story in more than one format. Mm. Um, So it might have been a play script or a film script as well or a classroom performance as well as being a story. Or it's a how-to book that has uh, advice in it for other people. Mm. So, And often those books were commissioned So the authorpreneurship book that the Australian Society of Authors published, which is probably one of the most useful for your audience, Mm, is about the concept of the ways in which being published has changed Mm. um, very much now and that a creator also needs to be an authorpreneur in the sense that they have to look at the market possibilities of that idea Mm. and how they might craft it in a way that it is appropriate for a particular audience. And I think that's the big difference for a long-term author uh, to be conscious of your reader and Mm. to craft your material. I think there are a couple of stages. At first, you write uh, because you want to write and something grabs your attention. As you become a bit more experienced, you look at the best way in which that format could be explored. Uh, Our most recent example is the Hijabi Girl, which is coming out um, uh, next week. And originally, I'm I'm co-writing that with a a Muslim librarian, Erske. Um, And originally, we had conceived of that as a picture book because then it would be possible um, for it to be read by perhaps older readers too, although the character is about eight, a very feisty young girl who's a sort of new Pippi Longstocking. She just happens to be in a hijab and she solves all problems. But originally we conceived it as a picture book because we thought it could be used by many for whom English was a second language as well. But that, because of the political implications at the moment of the word hijab, we had a lot of difficulties with that. And a, a chapter book, which is what it is now, a junior chapter book, was easier to get out than a picture book, which right. is um, much more demanding in terms of um, illustrations and so on. We've been very lucky in that Serena Geddes has done the artwork for this one, and it works. Right. But 
the the um, pitching an idea for a particular audience. So, for example, um, the other controversial or potentially controversial book is F to M, which I think you mentioned yes, in your introduction, yes. uh, which F to M, The Boy Within, which is um, a young adult novel on a character who transitions gender. Well, my co-writer, we knew there would be um, mixed reactions to a subject like that, but it's a coming-of-age novel. My co-writer has been in that situation and is a family friend between the ages of my adult children and grew up with them. Um, so with that one, the reason that we decided to make it fiction and young adult fiction and for the character to be around the 17-year-old age group, but the readership to be 13 upwards, mm. was that photo ID is incredibly important when you're transitioning gender, and that affects all your documentation everywhere. So someone who is about to go for a driving licence, which is the 17-year-old age group and the friendships issues. Mm. So we, we concentrated that, but this book has been used by many families with gender-diverse uh, combinations, or fluid gender is a term I've learned recently too. Right. So it's being used by a readership who aren't necessarily 13 to 17 because a novel, uh, a, a work of fiction, is a way of distancing a little from your situation yeah. and looking uh, from the point of view of living as that character for the length of that book and maybe beyond and a little more tolerance. Mm. Now, we don't write propaganda. We write stories. Mm. There's a big difference. Yeah. Do you work on multiple projects at once or are you I, strictly yeah, on one at a time? I usually – I used to have about five running concurrently, but the last year or so I concentrated mainly on writing the memoir, not just a piece of cake. And mm -hmm. there were health reasons for that because I'd had a bit of a heart scare and I couldn't fly for a year. So uh, I was a bit worried about my literary clutter right. okay. <laughs> and what I might leave for my daughter to sort out. So right. I thought that I would work my way through slowly because I was always being asked for autobiographical content, which I had avoided until then. Yes. Um, but I thought what I'll do is I'll declutter my literary life and, and look, because people often ask about the techniques you use as a long-term author. Yes. Being a long-term author who's also had a family is a very different situation from a lot of the autobiographical accounts that you read of earlier writers mm. who were often single, who were often from wealthy families, who often didn't have other bills to pay. Yes. <laughs> or who had servants. Yes. I, I often think Virginia Woolf's situation where she describes needing a room of your own in 500 a year is fantastic. Yeah. But she happened to be married to the publisher. <laughs> And she didn't cook. <laughs> oh, that'd be nice. I, I, I dream uh, of She that. was part of the Bloomsbury group. But her quote is very relevant to everybody um, who is aspiring to. So I'm often asked about those things. And I, I thought, okay, what I'll do this time is I'll write something which I may not publish. Mm. And I will experiment with the eye uh, of being completely candid 
about the challenges and I'll try to answer the questions that people ask me. So there's one chapter in there I think that your people might find particularly interesting. It's called The Plateau of Boredom <laughs> and why you write and how you work your way through this plateau of boredom. Yeah. But I also put in completely different chapters like some of the fan mail is really poignant. Yeah. Some of it's really funny. So I thought, I'll do it in a completely unconventional way. I'll write about the things that I've been most asked about, even though they're very diverse. So there's one chapter there. What I've done is it's, I suppose, it's literary speed dating. I've... Um, <laughs> Use the questions that are most often asked of my characters, such as the hippo, yep. but I've answered them. So I'm on both sides. On oh, both sides of the... <laughs> well, I, find, I found it um, a really interesting read, the memoir, because it's like, it's like the way it's, it's, a, it's a very conversational book yes. and it's like fragments. It's like we're yes. having one long conversation, but we're kind of coming back to it and we're dipping in and out yeah. of it. And it's it's um it is a it is a lovely read, and I I recommend it to anyone who's looking for a long term career as an author. Yes, the reality really of it is, is right yeah. there in front of you. Um, do you have a strict writing routine? Do you write every day? Oh yes, I'm very self disciplined, mm. and I think that's the the other. Um, idea I'd like to get across in the memoir. There are a lot of people who talk about being a writer, mm. but you actually have to do it. Mm. And one of the things I found most interesting as I was decluttering um, and looking back over projects that had been initiated and perhaps had died or, you know, moved sideways and so on. In the past when I've been asked about what was the success rate on the projects that you did. I have always said that a freelancer probably gets about one in 10 up, you know, about 10%, mm. even if you pitch a project before you start it and, and you're pretty organised and you look at the market and something you're passionately involved in and so on. I'd always said, oh, it's about one in 10. Mm. The reality when I went back and looked at almost 50 years of writing was it's about one in 40 wow. which is even less but what happened was and I think this happens for many long-term writers and it may be of a little comfort is that something that hasn't worked you you put on the back burner for a while and it might be that it didn't work because the timing was wrong. Mm. Um, it could have been... Um, a, a very good example was our F2M book, which came out five, six years ago, and it was the first book of its type on that subject. And um, But now there's a lot of material around on that, that sub, with that subject matter, but mm. we just happened to be ahead of it. Um, that... It might be the wrong timing, it might be the wrong format, it might be the wrong length, you might have, they might have had something like that recently. There might be a whole lot of factors that are nothing to do with the quality of what you've written. On the other hand, it might be that it just wasn't good enough. Mm. It wasn't thought through sufficiently and that you might have to go back and do it again. And, and So what I found was when I looked at these, it might have been a 1 in 40 success rate, but a lot of the other 39 were fed in to other experiences later um, and helped shape later projects. Mm. An example would be 
something like film or animation, the first time you're offered a film option or an animation option, you race out for the champagne and you celebrate. Yes. <laughs> um, but the reality is a lot of those really, really big projects where you're talking millions of dollars don't happen. They never get up, I know. Um, a lot of them don't. Um, but, you know, next time of some of the things that you need to to safeguard on that increase the chances of, of something mm. really working well. Mm. So um, I do talk in there about those sorts of realities and I do talk about the, the importance, if you're a long-term writer, of not writing the novel about the novelist who's writing a novel about the novelist who's writing a novel, who's got a writer's block. I don't believe in writer's block. I do talk about the need for participant observation, that is going and doing new things in order that you can write realistically about it afterwards. And my Antarctic expeditions and Nepal and so on, a lot of people don't know about all of that stuff. I'm known as the hippo writer. Um, the hippo lady. Yeah, the hippo lady, which when you're my size and weight <laughs> is, is a mixed blessing. But um, the, the importance of continuing to grow in terms of ideas and experiences and not being totally introspective. Yeah. And so that's another reason why for a long-term writer, um, collaborations are important because you're forced to learn new things in new areas. So I've collaborated with psychologists like Dr. Helen McGraw on the book Difficult Personalities. Mm -hmm. We freaked out when we lost the chapter on anxiety inside <laughs> the space. But apart from that, it's gone into Russian and Polish and Korean. I don't know that an American. Uh, I don't know whether that indicates where difficult people are, but um, it, it's travelled much, much further than our friend's book. I've collaborated with my son on his two adventure memoirs, yeah. one of which is cycling solo from Ireland to Istanbul and the other one is the trail magic one of the Appalachian Trail you mentioned. Now he did the physical stuff of that. I didn't actually walk the Appalachian Trail but he did yep. and he finished it which is more than Bill Bryson <laughs> did himself. Um, but uh, continuing to be open to other possibilities so when you ask me about what, how many projects you do a year, I try to have at least one, which is a new area for me. So I'm learning new skills and new worlds and write about it. In the past, I investigated Pokies gambling because I was interested in the maths of that. In the last year or so, I found out quite a lot in connection with Hijabi Girl about Islamic religion. Hmm. And I, so, Learning new, both geographic experiences, but also mental challenges as well. And one of the reasons for writing mysteries, both for adults and for children, is it enables you to use a variety of settings, but with the same characters. And it enables you to continue to grow too. So just to go back slightly, when you do co-author with somebody, um, yes. what do you think is the what, what do you think is the biggest single challenge of writing a book with somebody else? Well, the first thing is you need a letter of agreement, ah. <laughs> even if it's your son. Right. Um, uh, the Australian Society of Authors, and I'd strongly advise people to look at the Australian Society of Authors resources there, um, 
have have a contract for co-authors, but to decide between you who is going to be doing what and who will defer to whom on uh, different aspects. So mm. my relationships with different collaborators has varied in that it depends what they're bringing to the project and it depends what I'm bringing. Mm. Often I'm bringing the writing expertise and perhaps the business expertise or the entrepreneurial aspect. Mm -hmm. uh, they may be bringing specialised knowledge. Mm. So, for example, in Hijabi Girl, uh, Earthgate checked all the cultural aspects and we had to make sure that our central character of Melek, her sleeves were long enough. Right. And to be modest and um, the food was right yes. for halal and things like that um, but we actually co-wrote it together when I worked with Ryan Kennedy on the F2M book that was one of the most interesting collaborations for me because he was in a different country he was in New Zealand mm. so we actually collaborated on Skype which sounds a bit wow. weird but it wasn't just talking to each other we actually typed stuff as well because we found that we could save the plotting queries if we typed them as you went <laughs> as we went and he uh, what I found interesting he's Australian but his, his New Zealand accent became more pronounced as the year progressed oh, we wrote a detailed synopsis to start with we pitched the concept and got a contract from the publisher before we started serious writing. Right. We developed our central characters. We we really plotted it very, very carefully, that one. But what would tend to happen is that Ryan would write the uh, something each week which would come across to me on a Sunday night and I'd work on it too. We'd discuss the next uh, stage and so on. But in his case, he had experiences experience that he could bring to that subject that would have taken me five years of research to find out um, so I always deferred to him on all gender matters and yep. anything to do with the process and he deferred to me on the structuring of the story and the sort of business side of it as well and I think that was actually a really good collaboration but he was also extremely high tech, and I'm I'm a learning, uh, learn a new digital skill every day type person. Mm. And I have to tell you, the fact that he had naming rights on our character, whom we called Sky, who became Finn, mm. and Sky and Skype are pretty close when you're typing. <laughs> it was a bit of a nightmare for me. Um, but his high tech skills meant that that was the first trailer we had for a oh, book. Right, yeah. um, we did a web chat launch between link up between a New Zealand bookshop and here. They left me talking to myself on the on the wall while they went off and had a drink. Um, <laughs> and we have a YouTube clip that Kailash Studios did of an interview uh, of the two of us and why we wrote that book and the sorts of questions that people asked us Fantastic. and why how we handled things like the um, English teacher who threw the book in front of me in the bin oh. in front of her students nice. at a literary conference and said, don't read rubbish like that, which guaranteed they all read it immediately. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> <wouldn't> it. <laughs> but that sort of where you have 
perhaps uh, a controversial subject, but we haven't written about it in a controversial way. But where people condemn something unread, it, mm. it is a real worry. And one of the reasons that I continue to take on some subjects that others might can our hijabi girl book is a fun book she's mm. you know she's a terrific character she just happens to be in a hijab mm. um, and that means that some people will have a reaction to that book and even the title of our book is deliberate we played around with a lot of titles before we wrote that one but we hope that she will eventually be a series because she's got some pretty fantastic mates <laughs> including including Zach who's a soccer fan who's got a reading rat called Rattus Rattus. Other people have a reading dog. He's got a reading rat reading in the classroom. He's got, um, we've got two or three other characters in there. So, you know, we just hope that people will look at the universality of characters and see things from somebody else's point of view for a while. Excellent. All right. Well, just to wrap up for our today, we always like to ask our author... Uh, our writers in residence uh, for their three top tips for new writers. So, given your experience, mm. Hazel, I'm expecting big things here. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure well, at all. No pressure. Okay. Well, they sound fairly simple, but they're actually really important. The first one is to consider your reader. Who is your potential reader or audience, and craft your story for them. So, the first thing is audience. <laughs> Or readership. Yep, okay. Um, the second one is uh, to rewrite. <laughs> <laughs> Don't assume that the first version is good enough. Yep. Um, I would say on average I rewrite at least 10 times, sometimes 30 times, depends how oh. controversial it is. Wow. But expect to have to write it many times yep. to get it right yep. and don't judge it by the length nor the length of the words. <laughs> uh, uh, yes. So first one is audience. Yep. Second one is expecting to rewrite. The third one is choose a subject that you actually care about. Mm. Um, if you don't, it's going to show through. I do not believe hack writers can survive. Mm. I do not believe that writing what everybody else wants or everybody else is doing because you want to make a million is going to work. It just doesn't work. Mm. So you need a unique voice on something that really matters to you. Mm. Um, so the third one, or if we say audience first or mm -hmm. readership, secondly, rewrite but the third one is is the choice and I put along with that that the title really really matters mm. the title should be the first clue to what is inside mm. and that's why not just a piece of cake being an author was about the 10th title <laughs> in fact more than 10 I think it was really really difficult that's really interesting because it seems like such a given do you know what I mean like in the sense mm. of like when I look at it now I think yeah of course what else could it be called well, for example, on the cover now, being an author is in larger font mm. than just a piece of cake, not mm. just a piece of cake. But for me, it was not just a piece of cake was the major the title major and being an author yeah. was the second bit. Yeah. But from 
the publisher's point of view, being an author and is being the is the a story. continuing state yep. Yep. <laughs> was more important. So I think in that last bit of subject, but that the title should be a hint of content, but also in the style of what's inside. So not just a piece of cake, is actually, I mean, there are funny stories in there of the joys of travelling in the outback as an author and things that happen and so on. Um, but it's also um, poignant, you know, and it's genuine, that one. It really is mm. a candid account. Mm. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Hazel. It's been an absolute pleasure. I could probably have, as I think I sent out a tweet just before we spoke saying that the biggest difficulty of this conversation would be not turning it into a two-hour podcast special. <laughs> um, so I appreciate your um, candid answers and I, I do recommend the memoir for people who are wanting to be a long-term author. It's a, it's a great read and it's a great insight from someone who has done it and is still doing it. So mm. um, thank you again for your time and um, good luck My with pleasure. all your current projects i think for your aspiring writers the page on my website with the links for aspiring writers is yes. probably the most useful yes. resource and that's at hazeledwards.com that's right thank you all right thank you hazel what a cool interview i oh, wasn't it great like uh, you know i think one of the things i love most about her was the conversation where she talks about um, the fact that she likes to collaborate with other people because she, that way she's always learning new things. Yeah. She's always trying different things and she's always challenging herself. And I think that that's something that as writers we should all take on board. You know, it's that whole idea of don't just do the same thing over and over again. Look for ways to kind of grow, mm. you know, your skills and your talent and all of those different things. I, I think one of the great things about being a freelance writer um, mm. as well as an author is that idea that you're constantly talking to different people about their lives. So oh, yeah. I don't just live one life, you know, in the sense that you, you're, you're always learning bits and pieces about lots of other subjects and then you can take those things that you learn and you can put them into fiction or you can put them into um, into screenwriting or into whatever it is that, you know, that, that mm. takes your fancy. And I thought, I thought that that aspect of her career was really, really interesting. Yeah, always be learning, always. Mm. So we have a really good app pick this week and it comes to us from Natasha Lester, who of course is one of our wonderful presenters at the Australian Writers' Centre in Perth. And she has mentioned this to us um, and it's just right up my alley. And mm. it's the Online Etymology Dictionary. <clears throat> and you you can find it um, etymonline.com. We'll put the link in the show notes anyway. But what you can do is basically type in any word, like I'm just going to type in a word now and I'm going to type in drink and press OK and it will give you the etymology, you know, the history, how, how, how that word has been derived. So Old English drink can to drink and mm -hmm. also means to swallow up or engulf. And it also tells you uh, its origins. It's from Proto-Germanic drinking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And um and also in in Old Saxon it's drinken in Dutch it's drinken in Old High German it's trinkan in um, Old Norse it's drekker so it's fascinating where mm. some of these words come from and um you pick a word Al and I'll put it in here hungry 
Oh, okay. Are you hungry? <laughs> I am. <laughs> what makes you say that? <laughs> okay, so hungry is Middle English, English, Middle English, hungry from Old English hungrig, which means hungry or famished. famished. And yes, there you go. It's also go. in Dutch. It's hungerig. In German, hungrig. And uh, yeah, figurative use from about 1200, circa 1200. Okay. There you go. Hungry. Lovely. Lovely. All right. Well, that's something to entertain us in the next, you know, next time we have five minutes of downtime. (laughs) Exactly. But let's move on to our working writer's tip this week. What 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 have we got? Well, um, as part of you, um, as part of my ongoing series of Ask the Writer, you might remember that I asked um, uh, for questions from readers and uh, members of my community on yes. Facebook. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions that came through was quite an interesting one. Um, it's from Kia Steele. Hi, Kia. Hi, Kia. And the question was, how do you capture ideas for future projects in order to use later? Mm. And it sounds like a fairly straightforward question, but I know that lots of people do this in different ways. So I'm going to ask you first up how you keep track of your ideas. If they're just the mere seed of an idea, you know, it's just really literally a thought a thought as opposed to um, anything fleshed out, mm. then I just basically have an Evernote folder called ideas. Mm. It's only if they flesh it out, if I've, I'm able to flesh it out a little bit more, that I then give it its own uh, notebook in Evernote because mm. then it's in its own discrete section and can I, I can write and add further things to them. But I can assure you there are way more things in the, you know, general ideas folder than have their own notebook. Mm. So it's only if um, I'm able to think about it a lot, or not even that, I think that your ideas, they just naturally germinate and the ones that you're meant to work on come to the fore. Mm just by themselves because you are able to formulate them into something bigger and better and only then I give them their own notebook. Mm. How do you do it? Um, well, pretty much the same way I do everything in the sense that I just keep Word docs because, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm so old school about these things. <laughs> uh, I have a notebook. Let's say we'll go back to basics. I do have a notebook in which I yes. scribble things down, but as we've discussed, I, I don't actually uh, read my handwriting very well. So <laughs> um, my preferred method, I also use, I use Evernote for bits and pieces. So I will just, you know, again, I have a folder in there called ideas. I tap the idea down. Um, and again, there are way more like vague notions mm. in that folder than actual things. Um, once it becomes an, a fully fleshed, so, for example, if it's an idea for a new a new book, a new novel or something like that, um, it's only if it if my mind becomes absolutely flooded by it mm. that I actually will open up a Word doc and I will type down every single thing that I can think of that might relate to that particular idea. Mm. But I do not – so those, those ideas, that, that usually happens right in the middle of when I'm working on something else. So <laughs> that's what I do. I basically download my brain – about that particular idea. I write down character names if I can think of it. Mm. I write down anything that I can think of that relates to that particular um, idea and then I shut that document and I go back to whatever it was that I was working on so that I can finish that and then I go back to it. And I know um, we did an interview with Kate Forsyth Mm. uh, many, many moons ago in our earliest podcast and she talked about the fact that she has a new notebook 
like an actual A4 notebook that Mm. she opens up for every single book project, every idea she has. And she will write down every single thing she can think of. She will stick in pictures of, you know, places or anything that she can see, characters or whatever, Mm. and then she puts them in a drawer. And so basically what happens is when she's ready to start a new project, she pulls them all out, lays them out in front of her and chooses whatever the next thing is that she's going to to work on. Wow, that's like systematic <laughs> well she's it's I mean, good she's the plotting planning structure yes, queen so exactly. yes of course she works like that and of course she also has them all archived and she keeps all the notes wow. that belong to everything and she yes yeah, she's amazing she's absolutely amazing well, one um, thing I will say though and I've learned this over time is that sometimes you may have as you're walking along the beach or driving in the car or whatever this incredible flash of genius and you think this is the most brilliant idea ever and you think I'm I'm just going to write it down quickly now because, you know, you're busy, you're driving or you're, you know, on your way somewhere or whatever. And I write down what I think I will remember later and I just never, it's never fully formed. So Mm. if you have the opportunity to write down as much as you can, that is a lot better than if you just write down a few words thinking that they will uh, jog your memory chances oh, are they will not jog your memory <laughs> yeah like really I have the same problem like you you put down five or six words thinking yeah there's no way I'm going to forget this and mm-hmm. you come back to it two hours later and think what what was yeah. I thinking exactly. so yeah write down as much detail as you can at the time yeah absolutely. do you wake up in the middle of the night with ideas no I so sleep you've like never a got log. out of bed to write down an idea no I think if I've wake, gone I've gotten out of bed to go to the bathroom Okay, that's <laughs> no, that's quite an interesting thing though because there's. Do a, you? Uh, no, I could no because I write everything down before I go to bed. Oh no, I go to bed. My mind is empty. It's done for the day. Yeah, it's interesting because people will say that they have their best ideas in the middle of the night and then there's that debate of do you get up and write it down. I have friends who keep notebooks by their bed for this reason, you Mm. know, in case a dream wakes them and they can write it down. Um, But I find the best ideas are the ones that you remember in the morning Mm. because there's actually something to them. There's clarity to them. There's a hook. There's an angle. There's something, you know, like, you know, random boy running downstairs in the dark, you know, (laughs) it's like, okay, what? And where's he going? <laughs> and why? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, um, but, but you know, like I'd be interested to know, like do you wake up in the middle of the night to write your ideas down? Let us know. Let email us know. Us. Yeah. I'd be fascinated. Let us know on social media or email us at yep. podcast at writerscentre.com.au. But if you'd like to reach out to us on social media, where do we find you, Al? You'll find me on Twitter at at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. You will find me on Facebook and Instagram. Hello. Yes. Alison Tate Writer. <laughs> and you will always find me on my website, alisontate.com. Awesome. And uh, you'll find me at Valerie Koo on Instagram and uh, Twitter. And I'm easy to find on Facebook. And, of course, uh, now Snapchat, the Valerie Koo. <laughs> Where you'll see pictures of my herb garden and my cats. <laughs> no, I'm going to expand my Snapchat, you know, activity. Oh, are you? Into yeah. what? I'm not really what sure. What will you be doing on Snapchat? I'm just really experimenting and seeing what all the millennials are doing. <laughs> what are they doing? 
Um, got any updates for us? Well, I'm not taking fo- you know inappropriate photos on Snapchat oh, or anything like really? that. No, Gosh, no. Val, you surprised me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Until next week, though, thank you so much for listening and we look forward to chatting to you then. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.